Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches. Jimmy John's has three locations in Amarillo. Two of them are along I-40. There's one downtown near the ballpark. These franchise locations are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. And he wants you to know that Jimmy John's is rolling out a new red velvet brownie this week. Now, these are only available for a limited time, so you're going to want to go get one. Grab one for lunch, dinner, whatever. Get one of those brownies while you can. Thanks to the locally owned Jimmy John's for sponsoring the show. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to The Shop, an event venue, and to The Urban Giraffe. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com, courtesy of Northwest Physicians Group. Our January-February edition of the magazine is available now. It's such a fun one. I hope you'll go pick one up. Today's guest is Joseph B. Peterson, Jr., who is a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Now, Joseph is one of those guys who's got a bunch of letters after his name. He's a certified financial planner. He's a certified exit planning advisor. He's extremely involved in Amarillo's community, even beyond the work that he does. Joseph played football for WT. He served on a variety of city and nonprofit boards. And in late 2023, he was honored as Amarillo's Black Man of the Year. Now, we've known each other for several years, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of his personal story, especially how he ended up working for Edward Jones and basing that work here in Amarillo. And so we talk through all that stuff and everything else in this interview. Here's Joseph Peterson. Joseph Peterson, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I, we've known each other for a long time, and I've, I've known that you'd be a good guest for a while. So uh, I'm glad you're here. I want to start with you the same way I start with everybody, and that's just to ask, why are you here in Amarillo? So what brought you to this area? So what brought me here was uh, family. So my dad works for the Bureau of Land Management. And okay. He moved here in about 95 or so. So he came first, and then um, the family came next. So it's me, my mom, and my sister. We all got here right around 95, 96. I think I was six getting ready to turn seven. Okay. And uh, it was only supposed to be about five years, and then we'd probably move back. Uh, We came from Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. So uh, back east and now, 30 years later, we're all still say, here. Including your, your parents, like, they're here, too. Still. That's right. And he's still working. He probably has another two or three years before he retires. All right. My mom's retired. Um, she used to own a bakery here in town, Cakes and More. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. When she first came, she worked at Sam's and their bakery and always had the dream to own her own bakery. So we were able to purchase uh, Cakes and More from the previous owner, Trudy. And that was right around, I think, 2008 when that is when that was. All right. Um, and she had it for almost 10 years. Okay. And now she's retired and babysitting. Cakes and more over in the uh, Caprock area. That's right. Had Southeast a very Tennessee. loyal clientele. Yes, indeed. Um, they had really good cakes. I'd had those. So that's a that's a pretty big change, Birmingham to Amarillo. Um, you were six, so mm-hmm. I don't know how much it resonated with you. Do, I mean, do you remember that time? Do you remember growing up there? So it's... Small memories of, you know, different things. Um, but I think it was still a dramatic change, especially hearing about my mom and dad talking about the, the differences. So I always remember my mom saying, there's no trees here. There's mm-hmm. no hills. It's so flat. So that that's always what I used to go to is there's no trees. It's flat. And um, 
one thing, you know, the humidity down there, it's pretty humid. So yeah. I don't miss that. The, it was always nice to be in the summer and then go in the shade and be able to cool off. If you're in the shade there, it's still just as hot because of the humidity. Birmingham has such a, a deep history uh, and and meaning within the black culture. I mean, Martin Luther King and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember your parents talking about that part of the transition? Because you're going from a place with a a real high percentage of black residents with a deeply ingrained culture there to Amarillo where it's much lower. I mean, right, was, right. Have, have you talked to them about what that was like? So not in depth, I would say. So uh, we have had conversations and, and growing up, it was always, you know, ingrained, you know, talking about black history mm-hmm. and, and reading and, you know, even within the, the church doing some different plays and things like that during black history month. So that's always been, you know, part of my upbringing but uh, I wouldn't say anything in depth in particular about Birmingham. Okay. Uh, I remember talking about the uh, Birmingham jail letter and, and the bombing that went on. And actually, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, I remember asking my dad about the bombing and if he remembered anything. But he was so young. Okay. Uh, they didn't necessarily experience it uh, the same way. as. So he would have been young during that period of turmoil. Right, right. Even there mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. Alabama. Okay. Mm-hmm. But my mom definitely uh, remembers everyone talking about it and, and, and kind of the stories that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go to school here in Amarillo? So we initially moved to, um, actually, it was kind of right there on Culture. I can't remember the name of the apartments. Um, and I went to Sleepy Hollow for, okay. I think it was second grade, third grade, somewhere around there. Then we moved over to the Green Jade Apartments right there on Wolfland. Yeah. S- stayed in um that same cluster there, Sleepy Hollow, for maybe the third grade. Then we bought our house in Bivens. So that's kind of where I grew up was okay. in Bivens. So I went to Bivens Elementary for fourth and fifth grade, um, Austin Middle School for middle school, and then Tascosa for high school. Okay. When you were getting close to graduation in Tas- at Tascosa, did you know what you wanted to do? Like, did you have a plan for college? Were you looking to get out of town, anything like that? I had a plan. So um, I was part of the Delta Youth Group, which is a youth group that the Delta Sigma Data Sorority um, created for uh, youth. And they were kind of mentors for us. And as a part of that, you do a debutante bow presentation. So my bow presentation as a senior, you had to uh, come up with what you wanted to do next. And I remember in my presentation, I said, I'm going to be the CEO of a major corporation in America. So right. I'm going to go off to go to college, uh, choose business my major, work up the corporate ladder. That was kind of the aspirations I had as a uh, senior coming out of high school. Okay, what did that look like as you uh, as you started thinking about college? Then it's funny, you know, challenge questions for passwords. I'm giving everyone my answer now. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of your pet when you were ten? <laughs> What's Not the name one. of the college that you applied for but you didn't attend? Alabama is always the, okay. Uh, so you want to go back there? there. So I um, I applied at so I sent my sent my SAT scores to WT Alabama um, Tech UT and I think the fifth one was actually uh, Morehouse College. Okay. So five schools in Alabama was one of them. My dad went to Alabama and uh, we're big Roll Tide fans in our household. And what really dictated. Where I was going to go was being able to play football. Okay. So played at Tascosa, wanted to continue to play. Um, I knew I had the you know business major goal and all those things to become the, the CEO of a major corporation. But uh, what really was on top of my mind was, okay, well, who's going to let me come play football? Right. And that was WT. So that's really how I chose WT is being able to go play football um, in college and, and 
do all the things that I wanted to do. Were you recruited? Like, was, was there some interest? Did you have some options or was... So I had basically one offer from uh, Oklahoma Panhandle State. Okay. They weren't good at all. <laughs> uh, so I was a preferred walk-on at WT, Got which just basically means they didn't offer me a scholarship, but they said, hey, we want you to come play and you can earn a scholarship. Right. So I came on as a red shirt and later earned my scholarship there. Okay. How many did you play your entire time at WT? So four years there, red shirt the first year, and okay. then played the last three years. So I actually, actually left the fifth year out there, um, but when I was going to graduate, I had the choice of, okay, do I stay on one more year, start a master's there at WT, or graduate and go start the master's at uh, Texas Tech, and that's what I did instead. Right. I went, went ahead and went down to Texas Tech for my master's. Was that a good experience playing football? I, I talked to a lot of athletes. Um, when you get to like a Division two, there's always some concern, because you know you're probably not going to you know, move on to the pros. Right. Uh, and it makes your college experience complicated because you're so busy. Mm-hmm. But like everybody loves it too. I, I know there's just a lot of thought process going into that. Uh, what was it like? I mean, did you, did you phenomenal? Like it? Yeah, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think at WT made it even better because of the size of the school. So mm-hmm. pretty much, yes, you're busy as a student athlete, but I was able to do everything else I wanted to do as well. So. Okay. I ran for student body president my senior year. I didn't didn't win, but you know who else can say that they were able to be a student athlete and you know run for student body president? I was nominated for uh, homecoming king and man of the year, um, the president's award, I guess maybe is is what it was. Uh, but a lot of different um, accolades, mm-hmm. if if you will, uh, because of the small size of WT and being able to you know both be a student athlete and participate in all the different student organizations that I was able to participate in, um, you know, president's ambassador, all these different things that I don't think I, if I went to, um, say, a D1 school. Yeah, Alabama. They right. They wouldn't have probably no. allowed all those extracurriculars. You would have been too busy. <laughs> okay. You, uh, so you, you, you went to get your master's after that. Mm-hmm. Was Were you still pursuing the uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company sort of path, or had you started to adjust that at all? It adjusted a little bit. So um, I actually did a sport management major there at Tech. Um, so I had kind of two two different paths that, that I thought about going down. So one was within the college realm and working up to an athletic director position. So that's not necessarily the CEO or CEO of a major corporation, but it is the CEO. Yeah, the, definitely of a, a leadership component yeah, of that. The uh, athletic department, and the other side was actually within a, a professional team. So you know, working up to being like the general manager of a professional team, and I was more interested in the student athlete affairs side mm-hmm. of things or the corporate sponsorship side of things with the professionals. So I would see the play sixty. Um, I think it's play 60 commercials for the NFL. Yeah. Where the the NFL players go out and volunteer in the community. I was really interested in that. Um, So it it wasn't necessarily a actual path to being a uh, general manager. It was more so, okay, I'm going to work through the corporate sponsorship side Mm -hmm. and then get into the business side of of sports. Cause that's kind of really what that sport management major was, was, was the business side of sport. And then on the college side, same thing, student athlete affairs, uh, working the way up to athletic director. Okay. What, were, what was your master's at tech then? Was it in business? So I mean, it, was, there it was actually called so, so exercise and sports sciences, okay. but uh, sport management under exercise and sports okay, sciences. Okay, so you're not currently doing that, um, yeah. <laughs> from what I can tell, unless you got some side hustle going. Um, 
So tell me, like, tell me how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Yeah, so I really didn't know much about the financial advice industry, uh, and I heard about it from a career fair. Hmm. So I was getting ready to graduate there at Texas Tech, and um, you know, when I was looking at these different job opportunities within the sports realm, you either needed experience or you needed to know someone, mm-hmm. and I didn't necessarily have either. So I had the experience of playing, but not necessarily, not, not necessarily the experience of working uh, for a professional team. I did an inter- a quick internship there at Tech within the athletic department that that didn't necessarily equate to the experience that they would want to that you know a team may have wanted or a school may have wanted mm-hmm. to to hire me coming out. So I was at the career fair. I said, okay, maybe I'll just go and get experience in the business world, and if I still want to do something within sports, I can later change. And uh, that's where I met an advisor from Edward Jones, and they kind of told me about the opportunity there at the career fair. And um, they introduced me to an advisor that was in Lubbock, because I was actually here at WT in in Amarillo, in Canyon. So I was living in Lubbock, drove up for the career fair here in WT, and uh, they introduced me to one that was in Lubbock, since I was still living in Lubbock. So went back to Lubbock. uh, Later met with the guy there in Lubbock. He told me about his whole career path, and I was like, man. This isn't just another job. This is a great career opportunity. Um, I really don't have to worry about the corporate ladder and, and climbing. You know, mm-hmm. if I become a financial advisor with Edward Jones, it would be you know, eventually my office that I got to manage, and uh, I would be already, you know, kind of the CEO of my own branch. Yeah, exactly, will. exactly. So that appealed to me a lot. The uh, the autonomy of you know running my own office, um, kind of the unlimited earning potential that they talked about. Edward Jones has the largest travel reward program in the country. Hmm. Um, and, and that appealed to me, being yeah. able to uh, travel around the country on their dime. So you know, a lot of things were, were adding up to where um, that goal of becoming a CEO became less important the more I thought about you know, what I actually wanted in life and uh, what a career may look like. Because uh, once I started having kids, I knew I didn't want to have to move a lot. Mm-hmm. And many times when you're tr- chasing that corporate ladder, you have to move to be able to to you know excel and, and advance. And I knew that's not something that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be able to spend time with the, my family. And the autonomy of running my own business would uh, allow me to do that. So a lot of things really started making sense in mm-hmm. terms of this is uh, the opportunity I should be going after. So. I applied there after that uh, meeting with the advisor in Lubbock, and now almost 11 years later, I'm uh, still in the same office and running my own branch. Did you make an intentional decision to base it here in Amarillo? I mean, was there a thought of staying in Lubbock and doing it there? Or did you start there and then move it here? How did that work? Yeah, so the easiest way for my wife to start back in uh, school and get her master's degree. So she did an undergrad at WT. We were both there at the same time. I graduated in 2010. She graduated in 2011. Um, So we got married in 2012. She moved down in Lubbock and knew that she was going to need to go and get her master's or her degrees in psychology. Uh, So the easiest and fastest way for her to go back was to to go back to WT. So that's what we uh, decided to to move to Amarillo. And uh, from, from a Starting a business with Edward Jones' standpoint, um, I was going to have probably the same opportunities in Amarillo as mm-hmm. I would in Lubbock. Um, yes, I did grow up in Amarillo, but 
the network of people that I knew growing up is not necessarily who my clients are today. Okay. So basically, I had to create a fresh Rolodex of clients uh, coming back home. Um, so that would have been very similar to starting a business in Lubbock. So I don't think I had necessarily moved. Well, I know I didn't move to Emerald to start the business. It was more so so Angela could start back right. with her master's degree. And it was just an opportunity to to start with Jones and Amarillo. I, I want to talk a little bit about the Edward Jones model, um, because I, I imagine if listeners have encountered financial planners, financial advisors, retirement planning, anything in that world, you know, sometimes you can do it through your bank and they've got people who do that. You have independent, you know, financial advisors. Uh, there are a lot of different paths kind of to find your way to that. Mm-hmm. Tell me how Edward Jones is different um, from like some of the independent places or, or some of the other options. I think just going back to when it started in uh, 1922, you know, the goal was to bring Wall Street to Main Street. So mm-hmm. they put a bunch of offices in communities right there where people live. So rather than, you know, Right there downtown all together, you see the branches spread out in the different uh, neighborhoods, really. Mm-hmm. So the model is you know, one financial advisor, one branch office administrator, and you serve that community right there year around. So, yes, I can have a, a client that does not live you know, near my office or lives in another state for that matter. Um, but kind of the the concept is you're serving those people right there in your community and uh, you get to know the people in your community and you're you're able to help them with whatever their financial goals are. So for me and my office, I'm there on culture and hillside. And when I was getting ready to open and build, uh, build that business, what I did is go to those neighborhoods right there around my office and let people know, Hey, I'll be opening this office. If you have something that I can help you with, I'd I'd love the opportunity to. So it was a, Hard, hard work, pounding yeah. the streets and then drumming up business. But uh, it, it works. The, the model is proven and it, it's effective. It's not efficient, but it's effective. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems sort of similar. I, I talked to Leslie Massey mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast, and she talked about becoming a farmer's agent mm-hmm. where you have a recognizable name behind you, but then she was still going out and introducing herself, oh, yeah. trying to drum up business, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a, a salesperson. Yeah. For insurance, and I, I wonder if it was similar with Edward Jones. People trust the name Edward Jones, even if they haven't met you. Right. Uh, but then you still have to go out, and you've got to get your own business. Very true. Very true. Very similar. And and that's again, when you think about, do you have that Rolodex of people that you can just you know dial their number and say, mm-hmm. hey, come do some business with me? Well, if you don't, you have to do it a little bit differently and, and find the people. And uh, we went out and found them. They're in their homes or their businesses. Okay. And there's a lot of trust involved in it, too. I mean, it's not like insurance. It's like, here's all my retirement money. I'm going to trust you to tell me to do the right thing with it. Or, right. you know, uh, and, and so there's a relationship aspect of it that is unique in, in the way that I understand it. Most definitely. It, it's 100% relationships. And um, it's, it's interesting when you, like you said, that there's a lot of trust that comes in it. But when somebody gives you basically all the money they've ever earned or, or saved over the years, and, and they trust you to do what's best. It, uh, it's a humbling experience. Mm-hmm. I haven't really talked to someone in your position, I don't think, for the podcast. And I I always want to know about the emotional side of it, because there is 
you know, th- there's there's a fact base and there are plans and there are strategies that, you know, are, are tried and true. But like it's with a market that you can't control personally mm-hmm. and that is driven by sentiment, emotion, current events, all these kinds of things. So how do you deal with that? Because you're in a position where they're trusting you to take care of their mm-hmm. money. And all you can say is, here's some advice. And then there's a lot of unknowns that come up. So how do you handle that part of it? Definitely a lot of unknowns, especially when you look at kind of the short term. So essentially what we try to do is is look more long term because that's where, you know, the, the money is made from being in the market. So right. the saying is it's time in the market, not timing the market. So you're right. We don't know what's going to happen in the next you know 90 days, six months, one year. But as we get a longer time horizon, it's pretty certain, you know, kind of how things will happen. So I, I don't get in the guessing game of, hey, this is what's right. going to happen with the market, um, you know, next week or next next month. It's more so we're going to have a quality portfolio that can withstand these uh, volatility moments that we experience. And over time, that's where we'll be able to do well. Do you do a lot of a lot of handholding like war breaks out in Ukraine or you know, Hamas attacks Israel and suddenly you're getting calls saying, what should we do? Should we sell everything? Should we turn it all to gold? You know, do I need to stuff it under my mattress? All Most the- definitely. You're it's, just like, just stay calm. A, not even just hold hand holding. It's talking people off the ledge. Yeah. You get the call of, hey, sell everything. And you just have to take them back to, okay, that's the emotion. Mm-hmm. Let's go to facts. And there's a lot of um, research and, and charts out there that we're able to use to basically present facts and dispel the, you know, not necessarily the myth, but uh, calm them down from the emotion of, hey, mm-hmm. this is what's happening and this is what I'm feeling. Okay, let's go to the facts and see what happened last time there was a, a war like this or last time we had high inflation like we we're experiencing. That's the really cool thing. You know, you'll always see that uh, disclaimer, you know, past performance is no um, guarantee, guarantee of future, of future yeah. you know, performance or results. But when you look at the past, it can kind of give you an idea of how things may happen uh, moving forward. And there's a lot of charts that help us kind of explain things to help people you know, off the ledge. One of the things that to me is really interesting about your job, and I know there are details that obviously you can't share, but like you have a front row seat to people's businesses and their careers and how they've earned money, how they've saved money how they're thinking about retirement, which I feel like gives you a really good snapshot of like the kind of people who live here mm-hmm. and what, what they value, what's important to them. And I wonder like, as you've done this for 10 plus years, like what have you learned about your customers, about local people and how they think about money, how they spend their time, that kind of thing. I think that's been the really cool thing about having the business here where I grew up. So when I grew up, you know, just the mindset of a kid, you're not really thinking about how much money someone has. I guess you are from the standpoint of, you know, what kind of clothes they're wearing. Yeah, what kind of car are they driving? Yeah, that's all you're looking at when you're when you're a kid. But now actually seeing a person's net worth and, and knowing, okay, this was a saver. And because they save so well, they're really ready for retirement versus, you know, you may look at someone you think that they are well off and you see that, okay, they weren't diligently saving over the years and now they're going to have to try to catch up to have the comfortable retirement they want. That's been the really interesting thing is being from here and and kind of seeing the different, I guess, 
type of people mm-hmm. from a different lens. It gives you a, a glimpse into people's values um, because how we deal with money like always reflects that, whether we know it or not. Right. Do you have those conversations with people uh, um, saying this? I mean, this is this is how you need to think about these things. Less so, I think. Really, when when I'm you know sitting with a client and kind of talking about, and it's usually retirement planning, but mm-hmm. you know, whatever planning we're doing, um, I'm usually going to the number side of it. Okay, I tell them, okay, if we put this much back for the next however many years, this is what it's going to do for you in retirement. Um, and that was kind of the model, really, the, the, the past 10 years I've been doing it. But there's been a shift now. I think part of it was going through the certified financial planner designation. Um, it's become a little bit more holistic mm-hmm. and looking more goal oriented. And now even the firm has uh, made a shift and moved more goal oriented. So not just saying, oh, this is what your number is going to be. What are you going to do when you retire? Yeah. I'm going to retire and I'm going to uh, travel. Okay. So where are you going to travel? What are you going to do when you get to that spot? So a little bit asking more questions to to bring out, you know, what your goal really mm-hmm. is. So it's funny. I was um, I was talking with a client uh, not too long ago, and it was kind of just that same conversation. You know, when you retire, where are you going to do? Where I'm going to travel? Okay, where are you going to go? Well. You might have that one place that you want to go identified, mm-hmm. but after that, where are you going to go yeah, next? That might be a couple of weeks, right? You're, you're probably not going to go back to the same place every year. You, you, you probably need a, a list of you know top 10, top 15 places you want to go so that um, you, know, you really have identified what retirement looks like and uh, what you'll be doing. And you, you don't end up being bored and twiddling your thumbs thinking, man, I shouldn't have retired. I should have kept yeah. working. I, I want to talk about some of the ways that you're involved in the community beyond your job. Um, you're you're wearing a 101 Elite Men pin on your blazer right now, and I, I'm familiar with that group. I see you guys everywhere. Uh, tell me about that and, and sort of the the role that it provides the community as a service organization. Yeah, so I think for me, um, I've always been involved in some type of volunteerism, and it goes all the way back. I was talking about the Delta Youth Group. Uh, that was just one of the groups I was involved in that we would go out and do uh, volunteerism. And so I think because I was involved in organizations that volunteerism was important, um, it's become ingrained in me and I've always done it. So before high school, in high school, in college, and now in, in my professional life. So it, it started out in my professional life as a way to get in front of more people and just mm-hmm. get my name out there. But you know, it quickly has evolved to just be a passion. And I, I've actually tried to figure out, okay, how can I make that part of my business, the niche that I'm working in? Um, how can I make the nonprofit sector be that niche that I work with? So okay. um, I did the certified financial planner designation in 22. Um, in the end of 23, I did a certified exit planning advisor designation and then likely in 25, I'll do a certified advisor in philanthropy designation. And that's kind of just giving me the, the knowledge I need to help those philanthropic individuals give their wealth uh, to the nonprofit that they're passionate about. All right. So I came to that realization here recently 
Um, you know, when I first started with Jones, the question was, okay, how do I build this business? They're going to let me build it the way I want to build it. I'm passionate about volunteerism, nonprofits, working with, you know, philanthropic people. How, how can I make that happen? Well, it just came to me that, okay, that's how I'm going to do it. I think through the different organizations that I've been involved in. So I think the first one that I probably started volunteering for in my professional life was the United Way. Right. So you know, the director at the time, I met with her and she said, you know, you should, you should really consider being an loaned executive. I communicated to her that my goal was to work in that nonprofit space because I was passionate about uh, nonprofit work. And she said, it's going to give you a really good insight into the nonprofit community. I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And she was right. So with the United Way, they have their pulse on what the needs of the uh, community are. And uh, they work with the nonprofits that are meeting those needs. So going through that loan executive program, I got to learn about a lot of different nonprofits that United Way worked with. So we went out and did the site visits for the different nonprofits, like at the time, the Bridge, mm-hmm. um, the Maverick, a lot of different CASA, a lot of different local nonprofits I got to learn about through doing the loan executive program. Then I got to go and help raise funds for them during the rallies. Uh, so that's how I got my start in the nonprofit world. Once I got back to Amarillo within the, the uh, professional side of things. But once I said yes to that, I think people find out you say yes and they, they start asking yeah. more. So then um, they realized that you were uh, you were somebody who'd come put in the work and were maybe an easy yes. You know, exactly. and, and, exactly. and there's a small pool that mm-hmm. some of those nonprofits mm-hmm. start drawing from. So it quickly went from basically being a volunteer to then serving on boards mm-hmm. and um at one point in time, uh, here in the past couple of years, it was about six boards that I was on. Wow. And uh, I quickly realized, okay, I'm going to need to pull back a little bit. And, and um, I think I'm just sitting on three right now. Okay. I guess I can just kind of run the, the list. So I'm currently on United Way of Emerald and Canyon's board, um, the Cal Folly's Boys Ranch, right. um, and the North Heights Advisory Association. Okay. So those are the, the current three. Last year, I rolled off of Amarillo Chambers Board, the uh, Amarillo Firemen's Relief Fund, but it's their their pension board, and then also tiers number one, so tax right. increment reinvestment zone number one, which is a, a municipal board, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, so those three uh, I rolled off of last year. Still involved now with uh, one-on-one. So you just asked me about one-on-one. So not necessarily on the board for one-on-one, okay. just a, a member uh, kind of volunteer. And it was cool how I came to that organization because I saw them uh, going and you know doing good things, volunteering in the community. And the, the president, Curtis uh, Johnson, and uh, vice president, RJ Solajax, they came to me and said, hey, man, you really need to – Come be one of the brothers. Come, come, come be a part. You stand for everything that we stand for. You're already doing what we do. Just, just come be a part. And I said, I've been seeing you guys. You're doing, you know, good things. I kind of been watching from afar. I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready to to be a part. And they you know, welcome me with open arms. And now it's exciting, you know, being able to go to the different things. And tell me about some of the the actual work that 101 does. I mean, what what kinds of stuff are y'all doing? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is mentorship. Okay. 
So going into the uh, elementary schools, middle schools, a little bit of the, the high schools as well. We've been into Caprock and, and uh, Powder or both, but mainly the uh, the elementary schools and, and mentoring the kids. So I think Johnny Allen might be um, kind of the one we visit the most or regularly. I think pretty much every week there's someone over there at, at Johnny Allen. You know, going in and mentoring those kids to make sure that they know that somebody loves them and, and invested in seeing them be successful when they grow up. So you know, that also translates to the the summer camp. And uh, that's where I'm able to be more involved is during the summer, we'll bring kids out for about three days or so at, um, it was Cedar Canyon Cedar last Canyon. year. Yeah. Pre- previously it was, uh, I think High Plains, High Plains Retreat Center. Okay, like a Christian retreat uh-huh, center? Uh-huh. So okay. I think the first two years might've been out there. And then it's just this past year, it was there at Cedar Canyon. Who are the kids who go to that camp? So anywhere from uh, elementary, kind of around fourth grade, all the way up to um, basically your high school age, about a you know freshman, sophomore. Uh, I don't think we had any juniors or seniors um, this past year. So pretty big age range there. But um, you know what we try to do is teach them kind of the, the lessons of becoming a man. Mm-hmm. So get them out there. First thing they do is go brush their teeth. So teaching them hygiene. So we have uh, companies donate a lot of you know, goods and things, but they donate toothpaste and, uh, and toothbrush. I can't remember which dentist office in particular it is right now, but uh, they donate those and again get them in there. Tell them I think it's twenty twenty twenty. Was it twenty seconds? I'm not going to remember it, but the, the rules for brushing your teeth we teach them <laughs> and we have it written down. Somebody's got to teach you those rules then. <laughs> I, um, I appreciate, like, one of the things that a conversation I hear a lot is the need for specifically male role models, um, especially for uh, for kids in poverty, for kids who are growing up in single-parent households. Like, it's such a need, and if you don't have a group like yours, like, how are you going to find it yeah. unless you have a really great teacher or a coach? Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, I think for me growing up, it was – you know, organizations like that Delta Youth Group I was talking about within my church. We had a, a group called the Young Lions, um, but it, it's organizations outside the school that that really uh, can provide that for for the kids that, that that don't have it. And you know, many of my friends that I grew up with didn't have a, a dad growing up, so I was in organizations, and uh, we could we could see how those were helpful for them having a you know a father figure or whatever it may be. Um, through the organization because they didn't have it there at home. And that that's definitely what one-on-one does uh, through, you know, going into the schools, through the summer camp. And then, you know, just when we're out in the community, it, it doesn't even have to be attached to the school. You know, a kid can see us in the community mm-hmm. and, and just know, hey, I want to be like that guy one day. And we're approachable where they can come talk to us and, and you know, we'll tell them whatever they want to know. I don't want to close this part without asking you about the Black Man of the Year honor, which you received last year, mm-hmm. end of 2023. Was that something that surprised you? Like, was that on your radar it, at all? It wasn't on my radar. I was definitely surprised, um, humbled to to receive it. I'm glad I did. And I think the coolest, the coolest part about receiving it was at the award ceremony, being able to say thank you mm-hmm. to my dad. So wow. you know, we kind of just talked about uh, kids growing up and not having you know, a dad and, and a father figure and having to come from somewhere else. Well, I had mines right there in the house and, and 
I thank them for giving me that award because I was able to communicate to my dad uh, my appreciation for him being there and him being the reason that I was getting the award in, in the first yeah. place. So because um, all of the things he did for me growing up, it, it instilled in me the lessons that I needed to to learn to be a good man. And that's what uh, that's what led me to be where I am here today. And I was able to tell him thanks. And, and my mom was there as well. I was able to tell her Thank you for raising a good man, because they definitely, in my opinion, raised a good man. <laughs> I think a lot of people would, would probably agree with you. I, I want to close this by asking you, you know, you have, you've worked in Amarillo for more than a decade. You're in a career that wasn't really on your radar until you went to a job fair, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. Um, are you surprised where you've ended up, that you're still here in this place that your parents moved when you were a kid that's so different from Alabama? Like, Do you look back and think, oh, this is kind of weird? Most definitely. I cannot say that I had planned any of it uh, and I am surprised, uh, but I'm thankful and grateful and God had a plan and I, I thought I had a plan mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, going all the way back to those high school days thinking I wanted to be you know, a CEO. And, that, and really that was kind of when I get go into kind of the, the, the self, not pompous, but almost, you know, just self-gratifying mm-hmm. type of um thought process that I had as, as, a, as a teenager and then it shifted and that wasn't important to me when I started thinking about you know the career I wanted to have that allowed me to be a great dad be a great be a great husband uh, to give back to my community all those things kind of went out the window that I thought about and, and thought that I wanted mm-hmm. and um, that was all because God had a plan I thought I had a plan, and God had a different plan. He has me exactly where he wants me, and I'm glad for it. This week's episode is brought to you by SKP Creative. SKP Creative wants to remind listeners that the primary elections are coming up on March 5th, with important national, statewide, and regional races on the ballot, including the primary for the District 86 representative, which covers Randall County, And for Potter County, a new District 87 representative who will replace Four Price, a recent guest on Hey Amarillo. Four is retiring from politics, and we're going to choose his successor. Early voting starts February 20th, and the last day to register to vote is February 5th. That's coming up soon. So I hope you'll get registered. Among other things, this is the opportunity to make your voice heard about who represents our city and the people of the Panhandle in Austin. So go vote. Thanks again to SKP Creative online at skpcreative.com. Okay, I'm back with Joseph Peterson. Joseph, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historic Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it's known for its art collection, which includes a lot of Western art, uh, which makes sense. But I'm always surprised at the depth of its Eastern American and European art collections in the Foran Gallery. Uh, which you can visit there at the museum, and it shows the art collecting tastes of like the people who used to live here. Uh, and there was a lot of wealth here, you know, at, at one point. And so there are Italian Renaissance paintings, there's Spanish Impressionism, there's Hudson River School pieces um, that are just really fun to see in a museum in Amarillo, Texas. Yeah. Uh, so you can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, first question, when you think of Amarillo and Canyon 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Well, I think from the lens of being a parent, so my kids will be 
13 and 15 at that point. Okay. So um, I'm hoping that they're involved in sports and I don't have to travel to Albuquerque or Oklahoma City or Dallas to have you know really good you know tournaments that they're participating in. So I'm hoping that Amarillo has uh, kind of solved that issue of having really good competitive sports here and, and tournaments here and places for them to play here, yeah. um, here locally. We've got some movement in that direction, especially with the Kids Inc. complex right. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I I went through that as the uh, the parents of a high school athlete, and definitely would have been more fun to stay around here more often right. than travel like that. So, okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? It was going to sound weird coming from a guy that just said he uh, loves the nonprofits, but we have too many nonprofits. Okay, tell me so about it. I think we could do better collaborating. So kind of combining efforts and not having to have, you know, one and overlap of, you know, people that we're serving or things that we we do. We could collaborate a little bit better and combine efforts and have a greater impact working together as opposed to siloed and separate. Okay. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I've, I've heard that before. There are so many nonprofits many of which are working to solve the same problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, what does this area not have enough of? This is going to be a, a weird answer as well, because I think we earn appreciation, regain appreciation for these things because they're not here. So beaches, <laughs> mountains, <laughs> trees. Yeah, we don't have enough of those <laughs> for sure. I've always thought, you know, those are great places to travel to and experience. I've always thought... You know, if I moved someplace that had a beach, like would I get tired of it? Right. Like you get tired of wind here mm-hmm. or open expanses, you know. Is it a great thing to experience for a couple of weeks on vacation? Right. Versus just to live in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's one local nonprofit you personally appreciate? You've named a bunch. You've been involved with a bunch. The one I hadn't talked about is probably the one I appreciate the most and the one I've been involved with the most. Uh, it's now called Youth Success Project, mm-hmm. previous name College Success Initiative. Um, but I just love how we're pouring into the youth and, and trying to get them to think about what's next. So I, I truly believe that education is that great equalizer. Mm-hmm. And you know, it doesn't have to be a four-year college. It's you know, what post-secondary education are you getting to set yourself up for success? That could be the military. It could be trade school uh, or it could be college. But that organization uh, really helps kids think about their future in a way that I don't think anyone else does. Yeah, I really appreciate that organization. I appreciate how it has shifted its focus because it did start with college and college tours, and now it's it's broadened it knowing that college isn't the solution for every kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I do like that flexibility uh, yeah. in, in the thinking. Okay, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Palace. I've had probably 90% of the coffee meetings that I have are at Palace, and I'm, I'm glad that I can do it, you know, 34th and Coulter or Mm -hmm. downtown or if I'm in Canyon, I can even do it in Canyon. I've only done that one time, but uh, uh, I like the fact that uh, they're all over the town and it's good every time you go in. All right. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? It's going to be 575 Pizza. So favorite probably because that's the one we frequent the most and and actually don't even go in that often. It's really, we'll call it in ahead Mm -hmm. and and go pick it up and, and, and take it back home. It makes it really easy. Uh, but they they do a good job every time there too. Okay, what's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? I'm gonna say Bivens, and where you grew up. Exactly, it's 
my, my mom and dad still live there. And uh, it's cool being able to go back home and take my kids uh, to where I grew up. So my parents were actually thinking about um, remodeling. They did do a remodel, but they're they were essentially going to knock it down and build again okay. on the same lot. So they didn't want to move from Bivens, but they wanted to um, remodel the whole the whole thing. And uh, I'm glad that they didn't end up knocking it down because it's kind of I don't know nostalgic still being able yeah, to sure. go into the the house you grew up in for all those years. It's one of the most interesting neighborhoods in Amarillo because it's so diverse. I mean, you've got some of the oldest and biggest homes in the city, and then you've got small, you know, rent houses, mm-hmm. you know, just a few blocks from each other. Yeah. There's like economically, architecturally, like there's all kinds of diversity there. Yeah. All right. Last question. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? It was three years ago. So my wife and I, uh, we celebrated our 10 year anniversary and uh, we went out and I think we spray painted happy anniversary or mm-hmm. took pictures and. That was actually her first time going out there, and probably only my second time, but that was three years ago. Okay, that's a that's a good way to to go out there and celebrate. Yep. All right, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? This is going to be a selfish uh, promotion of my wife. So, Peterson Child and Family Counseling. So okay, she started her own private practice counseling business there in May of last year, twenty twenty three. And I'm super proud of her. And if I was going to promote anything, it'd be her. So Peterson Child and Family Council. I love that you mentioned that because one of the things I hear all the time is that there are not enough counselors in Amarillo, not enough mental health professionals, and specifically related to children. And I mean, that's, that's exactly what she's doing is filling that need. That's right. Okay. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. Thanks again to Joseph for the interview. You can learn more about him and his office at edwardjones.com. Thanks to Jimmy Johns, SKP Creative, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast. And to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 337. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>